hostess camp. You British prisoners have been chosen to build a bridge across the river Kwai. If you work hard, you will be treated well. But if you do not work hard, you will be punished. without me. That's an order. You make me sick with your heroics. There's a stench of death about you. You carry it in your pack like the plague. You and that Colonel Nicholson, you're two of a kind. Crazy with courage. For what? How to die like a gentleman. How to die by the rules. When the only important thing is how to live like a human being. My name is Nicholson. Give me the book. Well, by all means. You read English, I take it. Do you read the Japanese? I'm sorry, no, but if it's a matter of precise translation, I'm sure that can be arranged. You see, the code specifically states that the... Kill him! Kill him! I could have done it. I was ready. Let's go. on the River Kwai, played against the naked canvas of war. Here is a vast panorama of human emotions, the courage and dignity of men who fight for their convictions, the humor of soldiers in the midst of tragedy. I thought you were the enemy, sir. Well, I'm an American, if that's what you mean. The tenderness that springs from the heart. You're lovely. The beauty and brutality that is war on an island in the jungle. is a motion picture achievement by a combination of brilliant creative talent. Produced by Sam Spiegel, who gave you The African Queen and On the Waterfront. Directed by David Lean, who made Brief Encounter and Great Expectations. Welcome back to the Essential Films Podcast, a podcast devoted to the discussion of the greatest movies ever made or the Essential Films. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Mark Espinosa. How are you doing today, sir? Uh, it's a jolly good show on my end. How about yourself, Adolfo? Jolly good, jolly good. <laughs> uh, if, if, we, uh, if you didn't get it by the opening little whistle there, we, today we are discussing uh, the bridge on the River Kwai. But before we get into that, uh, I just kind of wanted to, we haven't been, you know, we, it's been a while since our last episode, since we were window. Just wanted to catch up. How have you, how have you been doing? Uh, when I'm not writing about movies, I am watching movies. So that's pretty much been my life when I'm not working for the past, like two weeks. I think that was the last time we talked. So, you know, it's just, you know, between work and then movies and then more movies, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of packed in. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know that you've been watching some some more recent movies uh, for our other show, Force Perspective. Uh, right before we came on, you were talking about the uh, how how much you enjoyed the recent Transformers movie. <laughs> oh, oh, I think enjoyed is a bit of a stretch. <laughs> I, I may have found the film that's actually worse than than Pirates Five. Like legitimately, <laughs> wow. Well, I, I as 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 evidence on their last uh, on our last Force Perspective, I didn't hate Pirates Five, and we got into a little bit of an argument about that. But that's all right. Um, any have you watched? I, I love I love lively debates. So it was all good. <laughs> um, have you watched any any uh, anything like recently that you know not necessarily in theaters? Any like just catching up on old movies or anything? Oh, don't get me started, man. As far as catching up on old movies. Let me tell you, it was on this show that I talked about my first trip to Alamo Drafthouse, 4 Clockwork Orange. This past week, I actually went back to Alamo Drafthouse for the 30th anniversary screening of another Kubrick classic, Full Metal Jacket. And I got to say, it was an amazing, amazing experience. Probably better than the first one. I don't know if you have time to get into it now, but yeah, let's get into I, it. Had, I had quite a quite a night. You got a, you got a retweet I saw from someone. <laughs> Yes, I certainly did, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But uh, so I don't know if I mentioned this in the the first time we talked about it. Alamo's doing this whole thing for a year; they're honoring Kubrick all year. They did uh, they did Clockwork Orange in January. No, was it no February? They did Clockwork Orange in February. They did 2001 in April, which that one I could not attend because I was during WrestleMania weekend. I was in Orlando when that took place. And now the third one is uh, Full Metal Jacket. The fourth one will be uh, The Shining, which is in October. That's going to wrap up the the Kubrick celebration at Alamo. But uh, Full Metal Jacket was the latest one. And I went over there, you know, just expecting to kind of, you know, chill, you know, have some good food, good drinks, enjoy the movie. Again, one of my favorite Kubrick movies, by the way. Hopefully it's in your uh, random movie generator, I hope, that movie. It is. Very good, because <laughs> I can't wait to talk about that one again. But the mood was set immediately after, as soon as I got to the seats, because when everybody when they finally let us into the theater, because it was like there was a line outside of it, because they, I guess the 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 waiters and everybody was just cleaning up to make sure everything was good before we let us in. So they let us in, and the first thing I noticed is there's this there's this it looks like there's a pastry, some sort of pastry or some sort of like food. On the uh, on all the tables already on the little the mini tables in front of your seats. So I sit down and I'm staring at this and I don't I didn't touch it. I didn't want to eat it yet because I didn't know if it was like an entree or if it was some sort of dessert. So I'm just kind of sitting there wondering like what could it possibly be, you know? And it kind of hits me maybe about maybe uh, about ten minutes into the the uh, Full Metal Jacket pre-show, which I'll get into in a little bit as well. That it has to be a donut. It has to be the jelly donut. Which, if you've seen Full Metal Jack, you know the famous jelly donut scene in, during the, uh, the the first part of the film. So, like, there has to be a jelly donut. So, and it was kind of messing with my head because I was trying to decide what to order for food. And I didn't want to order something meat if that thing in front of me was something that had meat in it. You know, and I don't want to order dessert if the thing in front of me was a pastry or dessert. So, when the waitress comes to me, I just asked her, like, kind of... No, kind of out there. I was like, listen, I don't mean to – I don't know if this is supposed to be a surprise or anything, but is that supposed to be a jelly donut? And she's like, yep. I was like, I knew it. That is so clever, you guys. That is so awesome. And she goes like, you know, I just had people ask me what this was. They didn't understand what the jelly donut meant. And I said to them, you know, it has to do – everything we do here, it has to do with the movie. So I was like – so I told like 
people legitimately asked me that. She said, yeah. I'm like, so th- maybe these people, this is their first time seeing Full Metal Jacket because if you've seen Full Metal Jacket, you know exactly what the jelly donut means. I um, do. Yeah, so uh, I had a little bit of private pile. War private pile, right? Exactly. Private pile, why is your footlocker unlocked? <laughs> oh my god, man. Just reliving that movie, bro, was just it was so awesome. I love that that first half, that boot camp scene is just amazing. The second half kind of, you know, kind of builds upon that foundation. You know, we can get it to a whole thing right now, but let's save it for when we actually pull it out of the generator. But uh, let me talk about the pre-show for a little bit because the pre- I told you about the Alamo pre-shows. Those pre-shows, like the waitress said, everything they do has to do with the movie. So the first thing that I walk into when they let us in, they were playing this anti-communist propaganda cartoon, which is so wacky. By the way, all of this is on YouTube because I was able to track it all down. I might actually do a thread on the Force Perspective uh, Facebook where I'm just going to thread all the videos that they played during the pre-show. So the first thing was this anti-communist propaganda cartoon, which is so 1950s, 1960s. And uh, after that, they did a, a G.I. Joe commercial from the 60s. They did a commercial for the, I don't know if you've ever heard this would be called The Losers. I, mean, I think now it's known as Nam's Angels from 1970, I think. But the trailer was called The Losers. I don't know if you've heard of that movie. It's, it's your war exploitation type of movie. I don't think I've, I've heard of that now. I'm going to send you the, the, the trailer for that because it's so like exploitation-y that it was wacky. But uh, after that, they showed uh, another toy commercial for something called, I think, the uh, the Something Commando Kid. It was some of the 50s or 60s, around like the Korean War, Vietnam War era. It's some sort of commando kid where like the kid gets like the toy gun, the toy grenade, the toy helmet. You know, those toys that wouldn't be allowed to be sold these days. But like in the 50s and 60s, anything went. The guns without the orange but, uh, tip. Without the orange, exactly. They got a holster. They got like the the bullet rounds and everything came with it. So it, it was very, uh, very of its time. They also showed a, a trailer for uh, Paths of Glory, which is another Kubrick classic, which I marked out for. It's a great movie. Um, it is a great movie. I have the Criterion version on Blu-ray, actually. But to top it off, they also showed a uh, a little behind-the-scenes vignette of Full Metal Jacket. And to, and to conclude the pre-show, they actually showed the music video for Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made For Walking. So I can't, I'm just imagining like the people who are sitting there that have never seen this movie before and watching it for the first time. Like, why are they showing me this song? And I'm like, oh, you know, ev- everything has to do with the movie, folks. Like, come on. You know, I'm just sitting there like wondering, like the people like – because there was a when we went to see Maniac at Alamo, they showed like some weird stuff. They showed some like some of those exploitation horror trailers. You know, it was part of the uh, the whole Maniac horror vibe. So I, I dug it. I'm just wondering, like the people sitting here for this Full Metal Jacket free show, wondering why they're showing me a lot of this stuff. It, it's kind of neat. Like for example, again, like just not to go in too much into it. When I went to see Colossal at Alamo, they showed uh, this Japanese exercise. No, there's not Japanese. This Korean exercise video. My mom is sitting there like. Why are they showing us this exercise video from Korea? And I'm like, well, because I'm sure it has to do with the movie. <laughs> so, like, I, I know not to judge Alamo anymore. And I, apparently there's a guy that programs all of their pre-shows, and they're pretty spot on. But, I mean, that's what makes it wacky. That's why I love going to Alamo. It's like the pre-show is like a lot – has a lot to do with the experience. Mm. Uh, I wish we had one around here. Um we have, you know, we have a, a, our fair share of um, revival theaters and, and art house cinemas here, but nothing like, nothing quite like Alamo. Although uh, here in Chicago, we have um, the Music Box Theater, which is it's it's like an art house cinema. For example, I saw something about a month or two ago. It was for part of the Chicago Film Festival. It was a movie called Lucky with uh, Harry Dean Stanton, uh, and it was oh really, wow, it was really really good. Um, 
and actually wouldn't be surprised if it gets some a little bit of awards buzz at the end of the year as far as acting goes. But right now, they're currently in the middle of their 70 millimeter film festival where they're showing uh, nice. like 70 millimeter films. Uh, on the on right now, this week they're doing 2001. Which, which right. I, I'm trying, like my schedule so is so in conflict with it because every every showing that they're doing, like I'm always doing something this week, and I won't. I don't know if I'll be able to actually get to it. But I'm going to try my hardest to try to see a 70 millimeter 70 millimeter screening of that. Uh, also, they're going to be doing uh, the Agony and the Ecstasy, Interstellar, uh, which I've seen in 70 Nine. millimeter, Sleeping Beauty, Spartacus, Top Gun, West Side Story. So like that's what they're doing this summer, and I'm I'm really excited about it uh i'm gonna try to catch at least a handful of these um if i can but i mean that's the closest i have but it's not quite the alamo draft house you know yeah i mean i hate to say it too like oh by the way um speaking of 70 miller i think the tickets go on sale this week for dunkirk uh, the uh, advanced tickets so uh i gotta check out a 70 millimeter screening of that and i hate to say it bro but i think after dunkirk i think i'm done for the summer not just because of my schedule because of work but there's really nothing else that kind of interests me after Dunkirk. I think I'm done. Like it's one of those summers where like it's it's going to be July and I'm already like I have no interest in going back to the theater. Maybe for Atomic Blonde if I have time, but I'd probably be like the only one. After that, I really don't care about anything else. I mean, what else is what else is coming out? Spider Man's this week. Then next week is Planet of the Apes, and then it's Dunkirk. Dunkirk. Well, I know you really want to see the Emoji movie. Uh, oh, I saw a trailer for that today. Actually, when I saw Despicable Me, I, I, and it, 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 it's as it's as good as the name implies. So <laughs> uh, I'll leave it at that. I saw a trailer today for Annabelle Creation, and I was just like, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't think of anything else. Like. That's it, right? I mean, there's not much. I think so, yeah. I mean, the Dark Tower is getting hyped. I think, remember, we said in our on our fourth respective preview that that might be like the bomb of the summer. Yeah. You know what else is coming? I think it's this summer or it might be this this fall. I don't remember. Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. That movie looks oh, like yes. it could be fun or it could be a huge disaster. I can't quite decide. You mean like that? Uh, what was that movie? Uh, the one with Channing Tatum? I forgot. Oh, which Jupiter movie. Ascending. There you go. Yeah, it could be it one could of those, be another right? Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> I've seen that movie. That movie is horrible. <laughs> Have you seen that movie? It's the- I haven't. I saw the honest trailer for it, and that's all I need to see. It oh from my it, so. god! It is so bad. It's like, it's shockingly bad. It's it's. How did you spend hundreds of millions of dollars on this bad? <laughs> and, and it's just like, I kind of want to see it, like just just to kind of say that I saw it and kind of enjoy it for what it is. But and, I don't know, man. And it's the shame too because. It's actually an original idea. It's original. It's not based on anything. It's not a comic book. It's not a uh, a, a TV show. It's not a Disney park ride. It's not. It's an original idea that they clearly spent a lot of money on, and it was bad. You know, and it's so That's so crazy, bad. Bro. That's crazy, bro. Um, but by the way, Valerian is the same weekend as Dunkirk. Oh, I'm gonna watch so, Dunkirk before I watch Valerian. Yeah, oh, of course. Valer- yeah. Valerian is like a, a a matinee, you know. After whenever it's in the cheap theaters, you know. Yeah, <laughs> unless I hear that's it's why good. I did, 
That's what I did for Despicable Me. I went to the matinee this morning. You know, like six bucks. So why not? <laughs> uh, yeah, you're a better man than I. I have no interest in. I I can't with those Minions anymore. I really can't. I saw. I watched the Minions movie with my daughter on Netflix. It was on Netflix, and yeah. I I couldn't handle like more than twenty minutes of it. I was like, I can't with these. Well, the good thing. I will, we'll talk about this on Force Perspective. But the good thing about that movie is that the Minions are they don't take up as much screen time anymore, which is good. There's maybe about maybe as if the movie's like ninety minutes, they take up maybe about like 20 minutes total even then dude that's too much they, <laughs> those minions jumped the shark after the first movie like <laughs> like i can't with the i can't man they're so and what's even worse is like how like you always have that one like facebook friend it's like an ant or something that like shares those memes with the minions on them with the minions on it oh, bro <laughs> god I hate minions. I really do. I'm I'm such an old man. I hate the minions. It's not that I hate them. It's not that I hate the memes. The thing that annoys me about the memes, bro, is that they make no sense because it's like the memes can't speak English, yet the memes are in plain English. Like, yeah, so. it's like you always have that one crazy friend. Ha ha. And it's like, shut up. Just shut up. <laughs> but, uh, bro, let me let me finish up this full metal jacket story. Oh, sorry. So, sorry. So no 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 I no I I purposely went on the on the tangent with the summer but uh let me finish the story bro then we can get to bridge but um so movie stars right we get some a couple of trailers which is fine not classics just more current trailers which I didn't understand but whatever um and then uh then you get the uh then you get the owner not I think it was the owner of Alamo Draft House or the the manager of the current New York draft house. I think he, it was that I forgot what guy it was. It's Tim something, but he was there to introduce the movie for maybe about two minutes. Then you get the, uh, don't talk PSA with, uh, our boy, uh, our boy, the drill sergeant, Arlie Ermey, which is, he's an alpha always in my book, just because of that movie. So he basically goes on a whole rant saying, you know, if I have to sit in a movie theater with a guy on his cell phone or a guy talking behind me, you know, I want to go up to him and yell right in his face or something like that. I think the, the PSA is on YouTube. I'll see if I can send it to you, but uh, it's pretty funny. And then the, the message says, you know, like, don't talk, don't text. Or you never know who's sitting behind you or something like that. So uh, – and then they go into the whole – you know, this auditorium is now a noise-free uh, noise free zone. you know. And then they go into the whole warning where if they catch you once, you get a warning. After that, they kick you out. And then after that, after that little uh, PSA warning type of thing, they go into a video that says, and now a special message from Matthew Modine. So it's Matthew Modine on the screen and he goes, you know – Hi, this is Matthew Modine. I just want to welcome everybody to this 30th anniversary screening of Full Metal Jacket. You know, and I want to thank Alamo Drafthouse for for setting it up. You know, and he talks about like kind of the he has a book out, I think, a, a photo book about because he was allowed to take pictures on the set of Full Metal Jacket. Um, and he released a book of those photos, I think maybe about a few years ago. And I think he's now republishing it kind of in a new version with the proceeds going to the Purple Heart Foundation to help veterans, which is which is an awesome cause, by the way. I, I looked into it. And he's also auctioning, auctioning off some authentic, like actual pictures from the set. I think it's part of like the, the whole charity initiative. So at the end of the, of the video, he goes like, you know, I just want to thank you, you know, for listening to, you know, to listening to this, you know, please support the Purple Heart Foundation. And before I we go on with the movie. I just want to have a few, I have a few, I have a request for everybody in the audience today. And I know it's going to sound a little cliche, but I want everybody to give me their best war face on the count of three. Everybody ready? And I knew I wanted to do it, but I knew no one else was going to do it. I didn't want to be that jackass that did it by myself. So, so he goes one, two, three, and legit, nobody does it, bro. 
Then like a second later, I hear somebody yell, ah! And I'm like, who the hell is that? And then you see some guy coming down the steps. By the way, I didn't fail to mention, I had an aisle seat. So the stairs are literally to the left of me. And this guy starts walking down the stairs saying, come on, everybody, let's see your war phase. Ah! And then everybody starts getting into it. And they all start yelling, ah! So this guy, who I can't tell who it is at that point, starts walking down the steps. Then he goes to the center of the... Uh, center of the screen he's like come on everybody let's do it one more time ah and then i'm staring at this guy it's this kind of tallish blonde guy right and then i'm staring at him and then my eyes light up like it's christmas morning bro and i'm like holy shit. and i'm sorry i'm cursing on this show but this is my legitimate thought i'm like holy shit. it's matthew modine bro literally in the theater <laughs> telling everybody to do their war face in the flesh matthew modine is like in the theater and i'm like marking out at this point so he goes like thanks everybody enjoy the movie so he comes right up the stairs again so he's clapping everybody's clapping once they everybody slowly realizes that it's him so they all start giving like a huge like ovation they start applauding and then the guy's coming up the stair again and as he passes by me bro he taps me on the shoulder and then he keeps walking so (laughs) that was kind of cool bro right before the movie started that's pretty awesome i can only imagine like if i was in that situation and i knew i heard someone coming down the stairs or or, like in your situation my only thought it's going to be one of two people it's either gonna be matthew modine or it's going to be vincent (laughs) (laughs) d'onofrio yeah and it's funny because i uh i've I have him on Twitter now, and he actually did a, a screening in, in Hollywood, I think, a couple of days ago, and D'Onofrio was there. So it was him and D'Onofrio doing the Q&A, which I was like, eh, I wish D'Onofrio could have been there with him, but Matthew Modine is good enough. So <laughs> so we watched the movie, and then uh, after the movie, he comes back out, and he does a Q&A with one of the guys from Alamo Draft House, where they talk about basically the book, some of the behind-the-scenes stuff about making the movie. You know, it was really interesting stuff. You know, some of the stuff we already know, like, you know, from like IMDb or like just other like documents of the of the film, some documentaries. But, you know, he, he had a lot of fun. Uh, he had a lot of fun talking about the, the movie. You know, he had a lot of fun. He, he did a little bit of Trump bashing, which everybody loved. And, uh, you know, and then he said, you know, uh, I'll be in the lobby. You know, I'd love to meet everybody. You know, I'll sign autographs if you want. So, uh, you know, I hope to see you out there. <laughs> so Matthew Modine leaves again. And I. Everyone, I could tell, like, they tried to get a head jump down to the lobby, but the waiters, like, were kind of blocking the aisle saying, you can't leave until Matthew Modine leaves, which is understandable. So he finally left. Then the the uh, the waiters let everybody out of the aisles. So I kind of run down the stairs, bro. When I get down to the, downstairs to the lobby, I'm, like, the fifth person in line, and there's a table there already waiting. I guess what there's a guy sitting at the table who's probably, like, his agent or something, and uh, there's some stuff on the table, which one of them is, is the actual book, the uh, the photo book which was not for sale for some reason. I don't know why he wouldn't sell it at the table, but he was selling a a kind of a, a three-by-five picture of, of Stanley Kubrick's directed chair, which he would have signed. He, I think it was like five bucks. He was selling the audio book for uh, this Fullmetal Jacket Diary that he that he published as well. He was selling that for like 20 bucks, and he had the uh, Digibook Blu-ray of Fullmetal Jacket that was selling for 25 bucks. The guy said that if you bought all three, you got, you got them for $50, which is like a – Apparently, like a deal or something. I was like, let me just get the digital. Now, I have Full Metal Jacket on Blu ray as part of the Stanley Kubrick set that I own. But I was like, you know what? Might as well get the book and have him sign the book. So I bought that. And the thing was, he wasn't even charging for autographs. When he finally came down, he he had like these little cards that were advertising like the audiobook, 
that were advertising the Purple Heart Foundation. He was signing that for free. Like, he wasn't asking for any money. It wasn't one of those, like, Comic-Con autographs where you have to pay, like, 25 bucks to get an autograph. He was signing anything. Wow. Part of the yeah, part of the screening was that uh, we got free T-shirts with Full Metal Jacket T-shirts, like with the with the ticket. He was even signing the T-shirts. Like I said, I'll sign your T-shirt. Like I had my T-shirt. I didn't want him to sign it because I actually wanted to wear the shirt. Um, he gave me like when I finally got to him, he gave me like three little postcards that were part of like the little flyers that he had. That he signed all three of them. And then after I, I paid for the Blu-ray, he signed that and he personalized it. Like he asked for my name. He's like, so what's your name? Like Mark? Like Mark with a K? Like yep. Like, that's the popular one. I know. <laughs> so he signs it to Mark and he puts the peace sign and then he signs Matthew Modine on it. And, uh, you know, we got to talk. I talked to him a little bit. And it's funny, like when you meet like a celebrity or actor for like the first time, you're thinking like as you're waiting to get to meet him, you're thinking of all these things you want to ask. And when I kind of, and when you finally get up there, you kind of just freeze and you forget what you have to say. Because I wanted to ask him about Nolan and the Dark Knight Rises. And I completely like I just blanked when I got up there. So instead, uh, Joe, who was with me, he actually asked him about Pacific Heights, which is a wackier film to Pacific ask him about. Pacific Heights! Oh, my God! I forgot about Pacific Heights! Oh, my God! That is a deep cut. Mm-hmm. That is a deep cut, dude. Bro, I want to ask him about Batman. Bro, and I completely just froze when I got there. He legitimately asked about Pacific Heights and the cockroach scene. And, and uh... And Matthew Modi admits that he had to do that take like four or five times because the director didn't like the takes. And those were leg- legit cockroaches, bro. Like he had to get cockroaches thrown on him every oh, single time. Oh, my God. I can't even deal with that. Right? That's what I'm saying. So he says that it was probably his theory was that he wanted one to go up his nose and he couldn't get that shot. So he kept on having him do it. But after the fifth time, he said, that's it. I'm not doing it anymore. Whatever you have on film, that's what you're going to use because I'm not doing that again. <laughs> so, uh, but that was wacky, bro, that he asked about Pacific Heights. I, didn't, I wouldn't have ever dreamed to ask him about that. Dude, I forgot about that movie. That is a deep cut. That is a deep Matthew Modine cut right there. And Michael Keaton, for that matter. And Michael Keaton, bro. Whack. And this was, I think this was the one he did after Batman, right? I think it was like the year after Batman. Yeah, he was the villain in that movie. Yeah. I don't remember if it was a good movie or not. I remember Michael Michael Keaton was really good in the movie. But I don't remember. I have literally not watched that movie in at least two decades. And I don't remember if he if the movie's good. Someone's going to someone's gonna have to tell us if the movie holds up or not. Because I, I can't remember. Well, well, let me let me just look it up real quick. What does the internet say about, about Pacific Heights? Rotten Tomatoes, ooh, 43%. That's not good. Uh, whereas IMDb is at 6.4. Not terrible. So, so if, you, if, you take the, if you take the average, it's like it could be either or, depending on your mood, you know? Uh, I remember liking it when I first saw it, but again, I, it's been like two decades at the very least. Man, Pacific Heights. That is a deep freaking pull. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'm legit, I didn't know he was going to ask him about that. So when he actually says specific cuts, I look at him like, holy crap. I would have never thought of that movie. And Matthew, Mo, I guess he doesn't get asked about that movie a lot. So he was all too happy to talk about that. <laughs> Stranger Things. Speaking of that, so we're on uh, we're online, right? For We're waiting for him to come to the table. So this uh, this this chick and, uh, and I guess her boyfriend or husband, whatever, walk by us. And then I don't know why she picked me, but she asked me, goes like, excuse me, what is everybody waiting for? And I'm like, we're waiting for Matthew Modine, you know, from Full Metal Jacket. He's like, oh, I don't know who that is. And then the guy behind me literally just jumps in and goes, he's the father from Stranger Things. I'm like, oh, I know who that is. Okay. Well, he's not the father of Stranger Things. So, well, that's what he he's said. He's like the so. scientist. 
Oh, have you seen Stranger Things? This is a good show. I have. I have oh, not. you should watch it. It's good. He's good in it, too. Uh, well, he's he's the bad guy. He's one of the bad guys, anyway. <laughs> oh, nice. But to, to kind of uh, put a put a bow on the story, though. So I go home. You know, I'm excited. I put a, I put pictures of the autograph on Facebook. And I actually tag him on Twitter. I just kind of thank him. Like, you know, it was, so, it was an honor to meet you and all that. And then he replies back. He got a like and a reply. He said, thank you, Mark. So I got a nice... Uh, I took a screenshot of that and put that on Facebook as well. I got the the original tweet with the picture and then his reply underneath, which is I think this is the first time a celebrity ever replied to my tweet. So that was, was kind of I think cool. you should. I think you should. I'm not sure if you did because I, I said you should put it on the Force Perspective page. Have you done that yet? Oh, I meant to do put that. It on the you know FP what? When page, I do man. the when when I do the uh, the the videos for the the thread for the pre-show, I'll put that up. All right. Because uh, that's wacky. Bro. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that that was uh, that was. Me at Alamo at Full Metal Jack, and I don't know if, if I stress this enough, but Matthew Modine was not advertised. That was a huge. That was a one hundred and ten percent surprise. That's wacky, bro. Like, and I, and I'm just I'm telling Joe like because he asked like, did you know about this? Like, bro, I had no idea they were gonna do this. I had no idea. And so that's what made it a hundred times better. That is pretty awesome. We never know at, at Alamo anymore. Like, I the next night I was back there again because I went to see Baby Driver. And Kid Koala was in attendance doing like a few sets from the soundtrack because and he showed us all like the wacky like hinky hinkery dinks and the hickory doos that he made so that he can compose some of the songs. And that was a wacky experience, too. But I mean, Alamo, man, like what can I say about it? That's my new favorite spot. Yeah, sounds sounds like a good time. I'm jealous. When you come back to New York, we got to go there all right. for something. All right. Hopefully you come on a Tuesday because they do Terror Tuesdays and it's always a wacky horror film like on the. When I went to um, the Full Metal Jacket, they're actually doing it on a Monday night because of the the event. They kind of had to like switch days or whatever because of the baby driver thing. So what they did for uh, for Monday, they did Terror Monday for one time only last week, and they did Zombie. Remember that movie Zombie? Yes. They they screened that one. Hmm. And tomorrow, which is the Fourth of July, by the way, they're screening American Werewolf in London. Oh, okay. It's good times. That is good times. And they're screening Jaws two tomorrow. So With Jaws as well or Jaws Part Two? Jaws as well. Okay. All right. I couldn't tell. So enough about all that. The, we that, that was a good fun conversation. But now we're here to meet the meat of the show. We're here to talk about the Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, released in 1957. It was directed by David Lean uh, from a screenplay by Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson, based on the book by Pierre. Boulay, I think is how you say it. Uh, Let's say Boulay. Uh, it uh, stars William Holden, Jack Hawkins, Alec Guinness, and I'm going to try not to put you this name, Susumi Hay- Hayakaya. Haya- Haya- Hayakawa. Hayakawa. All right. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I apologize to all of our Japanese listeners. Um, so th- this is a this is kind of a huge movie. Uh, broke a lot of box office records at the time. Uh, cleaned up at the Academy Awards. It's kind of wa- considered one of the great American and British movies of all time. Uh, it was both it was a co-production from of the United States and, and the UK. Uh, so. What, when did you first experience this film? This is one of those weird times where, like, I'm legitimately at, in my, on my couch just flipping through channels. And I happened to come across Turner Classic Movies, and it was just about to start. And I heard about this movie because we talked about it in film school. Yeah, I know it. I won the Oscar. And at that point, I had not watched all the Oscar uh, Best Picture winners yet. So, I was like, oh, like, another one to cross off my list. So, it just happened to come on. I just happened to catch it, and I just sat there and watched it. And, and yeah, that's how I saw it. <laughs> Uh, I, I first experienced it, you know, back whenever I was, uh, like, again, 
uh, I've told the story before, but back in 2004, when I when I first got Netflix, back then it was just the discs. Uh, I, I I wanted oh, to go. That's old I went through. I, I had I had my project where I wanted to see every movie on the INDB 250, every Best Picture winner, and every movie on the AFI list. Which at the time was there was only one Best Top 100. There's, they've done, since done another like Top 100 films of all time, uh, and I've seen. Uh, all of those on both both lists now, and, and all the best picture winners. Um, but I went out and this and Bridge on the River Kwai was like on, on across the board on every single one of those lists. So uh, there was no real plan for it. It was just like I, I you know filled up my queue with all these classic movies that I wanted to watch. And when it came when it came time to do it, I saw it. It was probably about. Like I said, I started Netflix in 2004, 2005, so probably about 15 years ago, or 13 or 14 years ago, give or take a year, that I first saw it. Uh, loved it immediately, and I've um, seen it a few times since then. Oh, man, I remember those times back in 04, 05 with the discs. I still do the discs, <laughs> and, by the way, because there are... It's a soda show. He still does the disc as well. I remember I used to watch like whole seasons of shows just from Netflix. Yeah, bro. absolutely. Like, I used to get like two discs at a time and then I'd send them in like the next day. And then like two days later, I'd get the new ones. So uh, it'd be it, it, it was one of those things where like, you know, that's how when I caught up with 24, because I never I didn't watch 24 when it first aired. Like there was one of those things that I, I kind of was late to the party, like around when season four or five kind of was going on that's when i finally caught on to the whole trend of 24 so i legitimately watched all those 24 seasons through netflix i would get like two discs at a time and send those in get the other two discs and finish the season and that's how i watch a lot of my shows i think that's actually how i watched 24 the first couple seasons as well and then i think it caught up for like season three or something and i watched season three and four live and then i think i was done after that (laughs) uh, (laughs) that, that show started to suck um but um but yeah, the, yeah, I still do the discs. There's still movies you can't get streaming. You know whether it's and I subscribe to a lot of streaming service, not just Netflix. I have Amazon Prime, I have Shutter, I have Filmstruck. So I, I have a lot. I have Hulu, right? So I have I have a lot of films, film streaming services, and there are some movies that. No matter how many f- streaming services you have, they're just not there. So, like, you can either rent them one at a time. You can always rent something through Amazon, right? You can always rent a movie through Amazon or iTunes. But why, to me, why pay the three dollars to rent it when you could just pay the you know four or five dollars a month for the for the Netflix account and then just get as many as you can a month? So that's why I still have the disc. So I know it's old school. But whatever, I still do the discs. Uh, and I do the streaming, obviously, but uh, I still do the discs. But yeah, so that was the first time I, I had seen it. I, I, I love this film. I think it's like one of the great, you know, adventure movies. And I remember uh, this is a movie that like I have a very vivid memory of like back when I started to get into movies. Uh, like, and, you know, obviously every, everybody is into movies in some way or another, like whether they just watch them for like entertainment or whatever, or whenever they truly become cinephiles, right? When I first started becoming like a cinephile, I remember my dad was telling me about this movie and about, I remember him telling me the whole story about, you know, these, about these prisoners of war and then they build a bridge and at the end the bridge gets blown up. Um, spoilers, (laughs) um, (laughs) spoilers for a 60 year old movie. Um, and, and I kind of just put it in the back of my head. I was like, 
oh yeah, that sounds neat. And then when I finally saw it, and then and then I was like, this sounds this sounds this looks familiar. Oh, this is the movie that my dad told me about. But yeah, this is a great this is a great movie. And and when you kind of describe it, the thought pro the the plot behind it doesn't seem all that exciting, but until you actually watch it, exactly. Like uh, I when I first went into it, I really didn't know much about it, so I kind of was one of those you know, films where I went into it legitimately blind like i didn't really know what it was about and then coming out of it you know i was just it was amazing i loved the, the tension at the end i tell you it's one of those like real like nail biting edge of your seat tensions uh and it was extremely well done as far as like just everybody involved from david lean from uh, the actors from just the way the scene was framed everything was just it was one of those scenes where like i was legitimately on the edge of my seat and it was funny to, to say that because I remember when I did when I rewatched this to prepare for the show. I remember watching it the first time and thinking that the first half hour was a bit on the slow end because it's it's all you're establishing everything. And I gotta be honest, I, I felt the same way again rewatching this. Like, the, but maybe the first twenty to thirty minutes of the movie is a bit is a bit on the slow it's a, end. It's a little like, dry. I found myself kind of do- it's a little dry. Like I found myself dozing off. You know, a few times during that 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 time frame, and then it wasn't until after once uh, you see. Um, William Holden at the uh, at the hospital. That's when for me, like it it was good from then on. Not not that the previous part was not good, but I'm just saying like it, it, the rest held my attention for the rest of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of a staple of of, of David Lean films. So I mean, uh, of David, I haven't seen his entire filmography, but uh, from what I have seen, you know, he does these big, massive epics, right? Uh, and they all kind of start a little. They're all a little slow at the beginning. They're all a little dry, right? The one I can, uh, so I think this must, I think this was the first David Lean movie I saw. Well, it's part of the David Lean trilogy, you know? Yeah. So it's the first one of the trilogy. Yeah. And then I, then I saw Lawrence of Arabia and then I saw Dr. Zhivago, which are his like three big ones, right? Like those yeah. are his three big massive epics. Uh, I, I saw yeah. a passage to India like two or three years ago and that is, that's a slow freaking movie, dude. I'm not sure if you've mm. ever seen it. That's a slow movie movie <laughs> I, I have not had the pleasure it, yet but, uh, uh i don't know if i say pleasure <laughs> i mean it's fine but it's i mean it's i mean it was his last film that he made uh and it's it just not as good as you know the big three which are you know bridge lawrence and and dr Zhivago. And, it, and and actually i think he made one of the greatest like love stories ever in a uh, brief encounter which is uh from the 40s it's on criterion it's about have you ever seen that movie it's a, it's a great film and it's about it's about two people they're both married to other people and um a man and a woman and they meet each other kind of like a train station just randomly and then they kind of have this love affair um throughout the film and then eventually you know the, you know, the they have to be separated and go back to their lives uh and, and it's this really great it's like one to me one of like the most romantic movies ever uh even though it's horror it has a pretty depressing ending um and he did like the, the some charles dickens adaptations like uh, uh, Oliver Twist and um, but it, 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 to me like you know the, the big three are Bridge Lawrence and Dr. Zhivago and they yes. all kind of start those big epics all kind of start um, a little slow a little dry and then they kind of ramp up at the in the middle that, that's kind of how I th- it's almost like his style yeah I think uh, I think I'm noticing that trend too but uh, I mean from the from the moment you see William Holden at the hospital up until the movie ends like I, I'm just I, at that point from then on I'm hooked 
but it's just the beginning. It's, it's just a little slow to get on its feet, in my opinion. And it's funny because William Holden, you know, according to to my research, was not even technically shouldn't have been in the movie because because this movie was based on a book, and uh, in the book uh, there was is pretty much everyone in the book was British uh, as far as the the prisoners go. The reason he was right. at William Holden was added was because the film the basically well, the Colum- produce, Columbia wanted yeah, it, it right because it was for the American yeah the producers were like we need an American in the movie and and so they got so and there was no actual American part so they just kind of changed one of the characters to be a, a, a an American POW instead of a British one and then they went from there uh, they cast William Holden and this is what I find interesting he apparently had a, a record breaking deal at the time they paid him a million dollars which at the time yes. was not was a was like an astronomical salary uh, which in you know 60 years ago a million dollars probably went a lot farther than it does now uh, and he another thing that he did uh, I think he wasn't the first person to do this but he got he got points on the back end of the film so he got uh, a percentage of the gross of the film so and the movie was a major 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 blockbuster and apparently he just lived on that money for like the rest of his life yes yes so uh, um, yeah so William Holden got paid a million dollars up front for uh for for the film and he did get a percentage of the gross and i kind of like i i i saw the story about how he basically asked for that payment in installments like you know a little bit uh, like every year he got the same amount and he was basically set for life after after bridge in the river choir which is a, an interesting story i wonder if he did that for like tax purposes so like he'd have to he'd get taxed less on it or something i mean i mean if that's what it was then that that was that was pretty brilliant on I his mean, part that's really, like i mean why else would you want to install this because usually because i mean like i would i would be stupid to just be like give me the whole thing now <laughs> you know but right <laughs> uh but i mean like maybe yeah but i think uh wasn't the story didn't the story go that i think uh, jimmy stewart was the first one that asked for a percentage of the gross he, i think it was the he first was one in a movie called winchester 73 which is like a great old western um which you, you, everyone should check out it's a really good film um but yeah he was the first one to do that and then uh, i guess and then now it's kind of a thing now it's now yeah now it's a thing now, yeah, exactly. now it's a, i think that's why like the most recent example where like like robert downey jr gets points for like iron man and avengers movies because i don't think he gets paid now he might get paid now i think it was the first avengers movie that he got he took a reduction in pay and took percentage off of the gross of that film, which you know that was a huge movie. So he's pretty much set for life. I think he ended up getting like fifty million altogether out of that movie. So wow. um, someone someone and can correct boy, me, but uh, I remember reading Jack that. Jack Nicholson, I think, did that for, uh, for exactly. Batman. Jack Nicholson did it for Batman, but not. But Jack Nicholson went a step further. Jack Nicholson not only got points from the movie, he got points off the merchandise. Anything with the Joker on it. And it didn't even matter if the Joker was like his image of the Joker or like just a, a generic like DC Comics drawing of the Joker. If it had the Joker on it, he got points off of it. And that is amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Like, that is that's awesome, that, bro. That, that I think is probably like the most uh, – that's pretty shrewd. That's actually. a pretty shrewd move. So, so like, so that's what if you ever see like Jack Nicholson do in any interview, and he doesn't do much. But like, if you ever see him do any interviews and he talks about Batman, he talks about that movie fondly because he made a lot of yeah. money from that movie. A lot of money. Um, I think there's a um, if you watch the the Batman uh, Blu-rays that were released uh, like about. 
five ten years ago. Um, there's an interview with him on that, and uh, he 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 speaks very fondly of those films, and I wonder why. <laughs> so I wonder why, right? <laughs> um, but anyway, back to Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah, so William Holden got got a ton of money for this movie, and he is. I mean, I think he gets top billing here over Alec Guinness. Uh, yes, he does. and uh, he's he's fantastic in this movie. Oh man, this Academy Award worthy is an understatement. This guy just knocks it out of the park. Amazing, amazing. It, it, it's funny because I think this character, uh, Colonel Nicholson, we're speaking of Nicholson, by the yeah. way. Um, this Colonel Nicholson is such an interesting character, you know? And I mean, I can't even, like, now rewatching it again, I can't even picture anybody else doing the role other than Alec Guinness because he brings such this like stoic I mean professionalism isn't like the right word I want to use but like this like kind of stoic I remember how David Lean kind of I remember hearing the story about how David Lean wanted him to basically play it as quote unquote a bore and Alec Guinness kind of wanted to make it kind of like kind of wacky and funny but uh, David Lean was like no he's a bore so that's how you want to you have to play him and that was why uh, Alec Guinness at first didn't want to do the movie because he didn't want to play a bore but he kind of had to be convinced to uh, to take the role. You know, he's playing this like kind of straight, you know, by the books, you know, colonel, and his character kind of. Well, we'll get to when we kind of get into my, the meat potatoes of the movie itself. But his character kind of treads that fine line between: okay, is he is he really a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Because he's actually helping the Japanese build the damn bridge. You know, so you really don't know where what his uh, you know, kind of know where his motives are because just by his personality. But you don't really know exactly, like, where he stands, kind of, you know, he, he in other words, he's kind of just walking that, that, that line. Like, he's, he's good, but then he's also doing, like, bad stuff. And it, it, it's, it, that's what makes his character just so interesting. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's funny because because of that very reason, um, apparently Guinness and uh, Lean would get into fights a lot. And some of that had to do with the fact that he thought that, Guinness would think that the thought that the film was anti-British, you know, because of that very reason that you kind of that 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 the uh, Nicholson's character, uh, his his motivations were a little suspect sometimes. And it's interesting right. because when I first saw this movie again about 2004, 2005, something like that, um, it was the first time. I had ever seen an Alec Guinness movie that wasn't Star Wars. So Star Wars, Star Wars was the only thing I ever seen. I had ever seen Alec Guinness, and I, and I knew he was like a big, you know, famous British actor and everything, and he, and he was very respected. And it, but I'd never seen anything he was in other than Star Wars. So when you see him, and the first impression you have is like, okay, it's Obi Wan, right? And my instinct is to just trust him that he knows what he's doing because that's Obi Wan, right? So I had never seen his other works. So I'd never known. Like so, to me, like you know, he's he has to be trustworthy. So, it, so I never, I kind of almost never doubted his motives because it's Obi Wan. That's Obi Wan. He can't like, and that's that's like an ingrained in me to trust Alec Guinness, even though like he had an entire history of playing all sorts of different characters of different motivations, you know, villains and heroes and what have you. I had only ever known him as the wise old hero, right? So to see him right. like in a role where like his morality might be questioned was odd. Oh, I can definitely see that. Like, um, and, I, and I'm in the same camp as you. Like, Star Wars was the first time I ever saw Alec Guinness in anything, you know. And it wasn't until later on when I started getting into movies that I started discovering. Okay, he was in Lawrence of Arabia. He was in Doctor Zhivago. He was in this one. You know, he was in a lot of. 
interesting stuff. You know, Fall of the Roman Empire was one that they'd always show on TCM when they do like the sword and sandals flicks. So uh, he's he's had quite the career. Yeah, absolutely. And he, I mean, he's he's a great actor. Uh, was I should say. So let's get a little bit into the plot. The film revolves around these British POWs captured um, uh, captured during World War II. Um, they are in a Japanese cr- prison camp in Burma. The prison camp is run by Colonel Saito. Uh, and uh, at the beginning of the movie, you see uh, I don't know what you call it a platoon. Uh, uh, what what do you right. call that? Like a group of soldiers? I guess it's a platoon, right? Uh, I would call. Yeah, platoon, they, they yeah. march in. Colonel Lick- Colonel Lickerson, played by Alec Guinness, is uh, kind of leading them in. They're they're whistling that song, uh, the Colonel Bogey March, uh, uh, at the beginning as they, as they come in. And the the Saito basically says, "You guys are here to work. You can't escape because." We're we're on an island, and it's stupid to try to escape, so we're not even going to try to stop you. Uh, so, you know, there's no barbed wire. There's nothing here. We're on an island, and you're screwed if you try to leave. Um, and then he sa- you know, and then he says, now everyone here has to build this bridge that's going to be very important for us during the war. Uh, Nicholson kind of says – at first, it's very funny because he's very proper. He's like, hey – you may have not you may not have you know you may have missed this fact but you got to understand that officers are exempt from manual labor uh for, as per the Geneva Convention uh rules blah 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 and then this is where kind of the the initial conflict of the film starts is uh, Colonel Nicholson's refusal to work and his refusal to let his officers work on manual labor for this bridge and Colonel Saito basically making him like and torturing him like by putting him in that that oven uh, and trying to make him work and, and that's a battle of wills until finally Nicholson wins uh, and then you know we movie goes on from there so what's funny is that it seems like kind of an odd thing to debate to premise this on because you basically have you know the, your hero of the movie the hero of the movie or one of the heroes of the movie is someone who doesn't want to do manual labor and now he's doing it it it's it's the principle of the thing he doesn't want he wants to follow proper geneva convention standards right right but at the end of the day it's also kind of like you don't want to work like you know you're just trying not to work you know and it's that that's what i think is kind of amusing that's the position you're putting your hero in and eventually obviously he he wins out that battle and now, whenever he finally gets released out of the uh, out of the box, the the oven, uh, as it were, the oven, uh, yeah. and he's kind of granted the fact that officers don't have to work, he then proceeds to make his kind of whip his soldiers into shape and make them build a proper bridge. Now, what he's saying is, uh, I want them to you know to be more disciplined because they've already lost their discipline, uh, just be kind of loafing around, not doing a good job. And regardless of the 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 point of what they want this bridge to be, uh, we need to show that you know we are better than them and we will make something proper that will last the test of time regardless of of if it's if it's for the enemy or for ourselves sir are you convinced that building this bridge is a good idea are you serious yes sir a good idea take another look you don't agree that the men's morale is high the discipline has been restored their condition has been improved are they a happier lot or aren't they? Yes, sir, but... They feed better and they are no longer abused or maltreated. That's all true. Well, then. Honestly, Clifton, there are times when I don't understand you at all. I'll try to make myself clear, sir. The fact is, what we're doing could be construed as... Forgive me, sir. Collaboration with the enemy. Perhaps even as treasonable activity. Are you all right, Clifton? We are prisoners of war. We haven't the right to refuse work. I understand that, sir, but must we work so well? Must we build them a better bridge than they could have built for themselves? 
If you had to operate on Saito, would you do your best or would you let him die? Would you prefer to see this battalion disintegrate in idleness? Would you have it said that our chaps can't do a proper job? Don't you realize how important it is to show these people that they can't break us in body or in spirit? Take a good look, Clifton. One day the war will be over. And I hope that the people who use this bridge in years to come will remember how it was built and who built it. Not a gang of slaves, but soldiers, British soldiers, Clifton, even in captivity. Yes, sir. So to him, it's a matter of honor, right? But it goes so far that, it, you know, that he eventually, like, eventually his own soldiers start to question, why are we helping the enemy? And then that's kind of the central conflict of his character. What, what I find hilarious, bro, <laughs> so well, I'm watching this back again, and I'm hearing, you know, Nicholson basically tell the Japanese, you know, you put, you set up the bridge wrong, you know, it's not going to hold, you know, uh, and then he's talking about like his platoon, so you know, they're undisciplined, you know, the Japs did that to them, you know, we got to whoop them back into shape, and in all of these scenes, and all these clips, he's basically saying that the Japs are losers, that the Japs don't know anything, <laughs> so I can imagine like being a Japanese person watching that back and like, just there's a very not so subtle anti-Japanese rhetoric going on here. So I found that kind of funny. Like he legitimately says, like you know, like in so many words, like he's very proper about it, but he basically tells them you don't know anything, and it's kind of funny. I mean, it, you, I mean, you have to imagine. I mean, this movie was made only a little bit over ten years after the end of World War Two. So yeah, I mean, fifteen years after what this movie takes place, nineteen forty-three, uh, and the movie came out in nineteen fifty-seven. So about fourteen, fifteen years. So, like, I imagine there's probably still a lot of anti-Japanese uh, uh, sentiment out there. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Because when you hear the stories and you, when you research about the actual POWs that actually had to build bridges in Burma and all that stuff, like, it's really – they. and that's the thing. That's one of my kind of, like, criticisms of the film. And, and, yeah, I mean, it is a product of its time. I get that. But, you know – I don't know if you would agree with this, but it kind of romanticized the whole POW thing. Like you really like they have it rough. Like you, the conditions in there are terrible. Like the the weather, the, the the heat is terrible over there. But for the most part, you really don't see them. Like you know, like when when they're they're building the bridge, like they're technically prisoners of war, but they seem like you know, like they're happy to build the bridge. You know, like you don't really see what really happened. With those POWs when they were forced to build bridges at like you know at bayonet point essentially you know and all the 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 POWs that ended up dying like and I, I understand the criticism on that front from like some people that think oh you know you're romanticizing the whole POW thing and they're kind of right because you really don't see like the consequences of that in a way yeah I mean they they show like some suffering they show some bad conditions like you see like right. the hospital and everything but uh, you know in real life because this is a fiction first of all we should mention this is a fictional story it, it has some right. uh there is some like basis in 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 factual uh, uh events that occurred in like different building of different bridges like you said uh but this is a fictional story um and then in some of these things like you said the conditions were a lot worse uh than, than were uh, depicted on screen and like people would die 
during the building of these bridges. Uh, and, and people were treated horribly and like hundreds of thousands, like maybe not hundreds of thousands, but like tens of thousands of people would die. Tens of thousands. You know, yep. So uh, in like these, in like, you know, in Malaysia and Burma and, and, and all these places. So uh, it, it, it did, rom- I, I could see it does, it does kind of Hollywoodize it and sanitize it a little bit. Like they still right. make it kind of dirty. And I mean, when you watch the movie, it looks, it looks disgusting and hot. I don't know. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, I don't want to yeah. be anywhere near that. Right. But it's certainly, um, it, 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 I mean, and I don't know if that's, if they, if that's a conscious choice or if it's like, you know, it's the 1950s and they don't, I mean, we, Hollywood still has not quite gotten to like making gritty movies like that. Right. So, I mean, I imagine if they made that in 2017, it would probably be a little more, uh, a little more gritty than it is in this film. And uh, well, the other thing I want to mention too, is about just, uh, Nicholson himself, like, when we first were first introduced to the character, when he steps up to Saito and is like, you know, for the Geneva Conventions, you know, officers aren't are exempt from manual labor. The first thing you notice, like at least to me, when I first watched that film and I first saw him kind of step out and kind of talk to Saito like that, knowing he's a prisoner of war, number one, I just thought he was one of those guys that had to stick up his you know what and has to follow everything by the letter of the law, not realizing he's a prisoner. So that kind of goes out the window, right? But he still had to follow his little Geneva Conventions. And I imagine, like, Saito was, like, beating his ass because, uh, you know, because, I mean, he's a he's a prisoner of war. So why should he have to give in to any of that stuff? You know, but as the movie progresses, you know, in this, at least this first part, when he's kind of challenging, you know, Saito and saying, you know, you, you got to follow, you know, got to follow these rules you know i'm thinking you know I'm, I'm gaining respect for the character because he's like he's standing up to him he has balls of steel like tony montana would say and uh you know and then like when you know saito finally relented and and said okay officers are exempt you know that was that was a big victory for him and you know i i, I earned respect for for the character for just not not giving up for standing by his uh his beliefs and you know eventually he won out later on is when i kind of started like maybe doubting that whole respect thing. But I mean, when you first introduced to him, like he's kind of has like that whole, like stick up his ass thing, but you come to respect them because he, in the end, he wins out. Well, what I like is that after he gets finally released, right, and he's he, he's going and inspecting the work that his men are doing. You know, he, he meets up with that one guy, and he's like, "Oh, we're doing a great job, sir." Wink, wink, and he keeps winking at him, and he's like, "What's wrong with you? Why are you why are you winking at me so much?" Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of when you start to see, uh, like, he's not he's not. He's not going to stand for this kind of like laziness. Like even though these men, in their eyes, are doing their patriotic duty by not by making sure this bridge is not built correctly. To, to him, it's not a matter of that. It, to him, it doesn't matter what conditions you're in. You're supposed to, you you are supposed to present yourself as a proper British soldier with proper discipline, and. And I think that that, that I mean not I think but that is the the central kind of conflict for the character that he's the, the one part of him is he has to do his duty but on the other hand he's like he he wants to make sure that the British are represented well even at the cost of duty which I think is interesting. Yeah, I love that comment because it's just it's kind of weird. You know, you don't really see that, especially uh, like it, and I was thinking like non kayfabe, like in real life, like if you're a prisoner of war, that's probably the last thing you're thinking about. You're you're thinking about surviving and probably escaping and surviving you know you're not thinking about oh how would this look on the british if we don't build this bridge you know to our to the best of our ability you know so that that's why i, I that's why i kind of like that about the character because it's not something that you really see every day and it's kind of like an interesting like study and in how a person would kind of 
kind of kind of balance that. And, 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 you know, this, I mean, we're kind of jumping a little bit here to the end, but at the end, whenever he's, when he sees that, <laughs> uh, when he sees the, the wiring, right. And, 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 that's when you know he's gone full what's the word I'm looking for he's just gone completely over the line and he actually tries to stop the the, the bridge from blowing up um, but we'll get to that we'll get to that a little later because I don't want to I, I want to kind of discuss the end at the end. So, so let's jump back to uh, uh, William, William Holden here. So William Holden's character uh, is a guy who's already at the camp whenever uh, Nicholson's brigade, platoon, whatever you want to call it, arrive. And he's this guy who's kind of basically conning his way through the through the prison camp. He's trying to get favors from the guards. He's trying to do favors for the guards so that they kind of take pity on him. Uh, and then he he's an American. He's American POW. Um, and eventually he does manage to escape the camp. And there's kind of this whole sequence, which I actually I have to say is a little bit, it, it's kind of, it, this movie's already pretty long as it is. It's like two and a half hours, almost three hours. Actually, it might be almost three hours. Let me see. It's 200, it's 161 minutes. So yeah, it's like 20 minutes shy of three hours, right? So and there's there are a couple scenes there where he's like, you know, <laughs> where he's like meeting those village people and the, not the village people, but like the people in the village. And then like he, he get, takes them to their boat and then gets sick on the boat. And it's all this stuff. And it's like, we could probably have cut that stuff out like the, the, we don't yeah. you know we can just see him from his escape until his recovery like we didn't need the whole we didn't and i don't think we necessarily needed the whole journey that he went on but no he's he's, he's recovering and like uh, he eventually escapes he recovers in a uh what what is that like a uh, some sort of hospital like uh i guess just a, i guess an allied power hospital right uh when uh major warden comes to visit him and uh he basically said he basically tells him he needs to uh get on he, he basically needs him to go back because he to back to the camp because he's the only one who managed to escape, and whenever Colonel Shears, uh, his name is Shears, right? And whenever he says no, they basically say, "Well, we know your name's not really Shears. We know that you just stole somebody else's name, and now the U.S. military said, yeah, you can take him.' So uh, they kind of force him to go, and he has to end up going. And he it's it's kind of like his redemption, right? Because he because at the beginning of the film, he's he's kind of not a coward, but he's kind of a he's a con man. He's he's not very heroic he's not very noble and he and this is his redemption is to come back and and uh basically help blow up the bridge exactly exactly i love uh i love william holden's character as well because i mean i don't know if this was intentional by david lean but he kind of portrays the american as kind of like this kind of sleazy kind of lazy guy who's just trying to like you know kind of get out of everything kind of deceitful you know when uh he talks to a to a Quintus Arius, a.k.a. Jack Hawkins, <laughs> and he's trying to kind of get out of doing the whole mission for him and say, you know, I, I almost impersonate, you know, I'm not really an officer, so I shouldn't really have to do this mission. And he's like, and then uh, Quintus Arius tells him, well, you know, we, we know you're not really an officer. In fact, that's why the Americans are letting us have you because they don't want to deal with the embarrassment of you going home. You know, you're a hero for escaping the camp, but – now you're an embarrassment for impersonating an officer. So you pretty much in a bind now. You have no choice but to do this for us. And so then he kind of tries to save face in that sleazy way that he is. They're like, okay, then I volunteer. <laughs> so, right? So, I mean, I, I love that character, bro. He's awesome. And I think another character I, I really love is uh, Major Warden himself, played by Jack Hawkins, because you, the beginning of the, uh, the, when you first introduced him, he, he's kind of almost on the same level as Nicholson, where he's like this very proper British soldier. It's very like, he just seems very like stuck up. He's got a stick up his rear end and all that. And, and then, 
as the as the film goes on, especially towards the end, he's kind of a badass. Like he's kind of like he's, yeah. he's, he gets down and dirty and like stabs people and like bombs them and stuff. Like he's a badass. So I, I kind of I kind of found that kind of amusing. He when you first meet him, he's very unassuming, right? And then like as the film goes okay. on, he's just kind of a badass. I think that's kind of amusing. Yeah, definitely. I love I love his art too. Uh, he kind of goes from that to kind of just kind of just. Uh, I don't know how else to say. Basically, kicking ass, but kicking ass. So, but yeah. So that, that I mean, so that that is so that those are the two simultaneous stories going on. You have Nicholson's story of uh, him, you know, kind of wanting to have the the his 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 patrol his troops whatever be proper british soldiers and, and be well disciplined and then you have uh shears's story where he's gonna come back with uh with major warden to basically take down the bridge and blow it up so you have both these stories and they're working towards the big climax at the end and then when you get to the end it basically you know they have this great scene it's like a 10 minute scene of them just swimming up the river and planting the explosives which was what i really appreciate about this movie is that and you can see it in some of the behind the scenes footage uh, on the, on the blu-ray is that they just basically took cameras into the river and like and and shot them yeah. doing this and so much so that David Lean almost drowned while he was while he was directing the scene. Yeah, the, those cinematographers basically became like frogmen, bro. Like, like they had to like take the cameras into the water and like film the raft and everything and it was that was an interesting way to to make this movie, I gotta say, and, and not 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 to mention that they built an actual bridge, like that bridge that they make, and that's an actual bridge that they constructed for the film. Now, in the film, it obviously looks a lot more sturdier than it actually is, but in in, in real life, it was really not that functional. It's basically only functional enough for like them to make make the movie, but it wouldn't have like stood the test of time or anything like that. Like they wanted, I. I I remember reading, I think, that they wanted to just make, like, kind of, like, this, like, the crappiest bridge possible, because it was just going to be for, like, exteriors, but then when they realized that they, that uh, a freaking, like, what, 25-ton train had to actually pass through it, that's when they were like, okay, we got to make this a little sturdier, so that's when the whole, they made, like, the track sturdier, and, like, yeah, it's not going to stand a test of time, but they have to make it sturdy enough to hold a train. You know, <laughs> and, and that's kind of what I appreciate a bit because you know, in theory, they could have maybe done this with models, right? Uh, but they yeah. went, they went hardcore. They built the freaking. I mean, I think they cost them like two hundred fifty thousand dollars in nineteen fifty seven money uh, to build the bridge, and and they actually started before they even cast anybody for the film. They just started making the bridge before then. So uh, I mean, right. it, it's it's such an impressive. You don't see filmmaking months, like that bro. anymore. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that took eight months to build. And I can't imagine, you know, because you can only blow up that bridge once. So I can imagine the tension when they have to film that scene with, with where they blow and up they the bridge. And they screwed up. It reminded me of that. And they screwed, and they screwed up. up. <laughs> it reminded me, bro. When I, when I was watching the, uh, I, I was reading about the uh, the making of, and then I watched some of the, the behind the scenes of on the Blu-ray. I was like, you know what I thought of? And you're going to laugh. I thought of that Simmons episode, bro, where Radioactive Man, where they're making the movie. And then they filmed the scene at the power plant. And that's the famous scene with uh, Rainier Wolfcastle where he goes, you know, my eyes, the goggles do nothing. <laughs> but uh, Milhouse was supposed to save uh, Radioactive Man. And that's when he ran away from the set. And they filmed the scene and then everything is just gets destroyed because that's real acid they used. <laughs> and he's like, that one shot cost us a million dollars. So I'm watching I, so I, I'm watching Bridge and I'm thinking about that Simpsons episode because it's like, you know, how scary is it when you only have one take to blow something up? 
you have to get it like right. And you know, as as is the theme of this movie, bro, like expect the unexpected, and that's what happened to them. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, you brought up the Simpsons. I, I I'm shocked that you brought up the Simpsons in an episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. I think if I think if if our show was a drinking game, that's where people would take a shot right there. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so so but yeah, like, and the thing is, they they screwed it up, right? They uh, and if you watch the the behind the scenes feature, basically there's a it's too complicated to get into here, but the, the 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 layman's way of explaining is because if you watch the film, there's multiple camera angles. So they had this kind of system set up where you know there was multiple cameramen at each at each point taking a different angle of the of of, of the bridge blowing up, uh, and they had this like lighting system to kind of that whenever the, it, the they clicked on the light, they would basically leave the camera there and take, get, get out of the way. That's whenever they were once all the lights had gone off. That's whenever they would blow the bridge. And, and and hit the train into the water. So basically, what one guy just forgot to hit his light on. One guy, one guy. Yeah, up, bro. because he like in, in the story, it's like he basically got too nervous about getting out of the way, so he, he just ran away and never hit his his light. So the train kept going and crashed into like a generator or something, uh, and there was this whole thing just to get it back on the track for the next. And then they did blow it up the next day, but they base they only had one shot to do it to blow it up. Once you blow it up, it's blown up because they actually they blown built. Up. They actually built a bridge and they actually blew it up. I mean, you don't see that. that 2017, that's done with CGI. Like, not even a question they do that with CGI. And even with the model, I mean, it could have been passable with the model, but... It's still, I mean, just the fact that you can watch this train get blown up is just so impressive. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that that's arguably probably the most powerful scene in the movie. Seeing that, seeing the, the events that lead up to it and then just seeing that train just plummet is like... And I remember uh, part of the behind-the-scenes stuff, too, where the guy – I forgot what guy it was. But uh, he said, you know, in the book, that's like the one of the big differences from the book. In the book, the bridge doesn't blow Which up. Which is ri- ridiculous. Why wouldn't you blow up it, the bridge? It's ridiculous, yeah. Yeah, but, and then he says, uh, you know, but but – no, we, we decided early on that the bridge had to blow up because, like, you're leading – you're building all to this big moment and then you don't do it. That's like kind of a slap in the face to the audience. So, yeah, they're going to blow up the bridge. So, uh, so yeah, but, I mean, that just amazing just the way it was done. Just everything that went into that bridge – and then the filming of it blowing up is just absolutely amazing. Some something you're not going to see anymore in Hollywood. And, and and I love that whole final sequence. You know where where it's it's a good like 15 minutes of of tension. Right, it's right after the uh, yeah. You know, right it. after they plant the bombs, it's like the next day, and they realize the water in the in the in the river had gone down, and then the wires are now showing. You see Nicholson kind of in, in, inspecting the inspecting the bridge, and then he sees the wire, and then but doesn't really quite realize it's a wire, but he needs to. He's he knows it. Something is up. He takes Saito down with him, and he starts like following the wire. And this is when uh, Jack Hawkins is like, "Oh my God, he's he's leading them to it. What what is wrong with him?" Um, and what is the what is the Canadian guy's name? Joyce is named Joyce. Joyce. Yeah, yeah. He, he's sitting there and he's like all nervous because he's he's never killed anybody before, so he's he doesn't know what to do. Yeah. Uh, and then you have William Holden kind of on the other side of the river, and he so this whole tension, you know, building up to it. And uh, so Joyce kills, you know. Joyce kills Saito, and then he gets killed by some of the the oncoming fire, and then William Holden has to come. And then I love that scene where Holden and and, and uh, I should say Shears and Nicholson kind of lock eyes, and Nicholson's like you, because you. <laughs> and then Holden <laughs> dies, uh, and and then finally that's whenever after all of that that's whenever Nicholson goes. Oh, what have I done? 
Like that's what, what I realized. I, was, I built this perfect bridge for the enemy. Like what have I done? What I think is kind of a what I think is kind of fascinating about this. So he gets uh, there's a mortar like uh, like he gets hit by a mortar and he and he kind of is a little dazed. And the way the movie is the way it, it, it uh, is portrayed in the film. Now I'm saying it's, it's brilliant, brilliantly structured in film by the way because it's left ambiguous. Right, because he kind of just walks over to it and then falls on the plunger and then blows up the bridge, but. You right. don't know, like it's left ambiguous. Like you said, you don't know if he's actually trying to blow it up at that point, or, or if he's remorseful or not. Uh, it, it just, it's just kind of an accident that he blows it up. But it's still such a great visual of him falling on it, and then it's the bridge blow. I mean, the, that that is such a spectacular explosion. Yeah, man, it's just uh, like I, like I mentioned at the beginning, the, just the whole tension of that scene, you know. From, and and John Milius put it put it into perspective for me when I saw his little take on it, where he said, "This is a movie where everything just goes wrong," you know, and that's basically the story of this movie, bro. The guy parachutes down, he gets impaled, I think, by a that's branch true, or whatever, yeah. and he dies. <laughs> and then a uh, um, uh, uh, warden gets shot in the foot after stabbing a Japanese guy, so he has to get carried all the way to the to the mission, bro. Um, the the riverbed uh, uh, goes down, so the the plants uh, the explosive plants get exposed. That's how uh, Nicholson discovers it. <laughs> and then uh, poor uh, poor Joyce, you know, unprepared for that, he gets killed by the uh, the Japanese fire after he kills Saito. Then Shears dies for trying to defend Joyce, and then you know, and then Nicholson dies after you know the mortar explodes. Like everything just went wrong, bro. And then Warren trying to just justify it at the end, bro. Like they would have been captured. I had to do it. <laughs> So it's just every it's just a comedy of errors in a way. Yeah, it, it, yeah, I never thought of it that way. But everything goes absolutely wrong for them. That's right. It's like kind of a failed mission. Although Shears or not Shears, uh, Warden does survive at the end. He's he's taken back uh, by those by those uh, the woman bearers. That's what they call them. Like, what is a woman yeah. bearer? I wonder what, even that, what that even means. The only women in the and they weren't even. So- <laughs> I was gonna say that. Say the, they weren't even supposed to be in the movie, bro. But remember, the studio was like, you know, there aren't enough women in this movie. That's why they have to put the blonde. I was about to say, and her, them and the blonde nurse are like the only women in this movie. If they were well, not for them, there's no women in this movie. Kind of like right, and, and they noticed that too. It's kind of like Lawrence of Arabia. A couple years later, there's literally zero women in Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> it's a movie we'll get to at some point, but uh, yeah, but yeah. So, so I mean, that's that's the that's how the film ends. I, I, and you know, and then you have uh, Clifton, who we didn't mention before, who's like. Like the doctor at the at the hospital at the uh, POW hospital, um, and he just goes madness, madness, and madness, and, then, and then the film yeah. ends. But I, I I I do love that's a great ending to a movie. I mean that's an absolutely perfect ending. Yeah. Now the, that quote madness was nominated, I think, for AFI, but it didn't make it right. Did it? Was it was it nominated? That's interesting. I didn't know that. I thought it was. Huh. I mean, I could see it. Yeah, I, I read somewhere. It was. Yeah, I could see it. It's a, it's a little. Almost a little hokey, you know, that, that one. I kind of would have preferred if they would have not said anything. If it were just ended with the bridge blowing up and then you have like the the helicopter 
like shot pan out and then the movie ends, right? That's what I would have preferred. Well, what's hokier, madness, madness, or the horror, the horror? <laughs> I think madness, madness. The horror, the horror is a little, little hokey too, but yeah. madness. But speaking of apocalypse now, uh, as you know, it was just my birthday recently, and one of my uh, one of my birthday presents right. was uh, so uh, my brother got me the uh, the complete dossier of apocalypse now, which includes the um, the original theatrical version, the Redux, and Hearts of Darkness. I have that as well the on the on Blu-ray. It's amazing, amazing set. I had the original DVD dossier that came out, but it just had the uh, the two versions of the film. It didn't have the documentary. Documentary so is amazing. Re- oh, amazing, amazing! And when I rebought it, I I rebought it on Blu-ray solely for the documentary. Yeah, that that document. I mean, I've never I've seen the original. I don't know. I don't remember if I've seen all of the Redux. I've seen it. I've seen some of it. I don't think I've seen the whole thing. But the Heart of Darkness documentary is. Absolutely, like one of the most amazing documentaries ever made. Yes, it's a little hard to watch at times, but uh, it's it's very it's very interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, but yeah, back to uh, back to this movie. Um, I think the bridge blowing up is probably in like my top five favorite like just scenes or shots or whatever you want to call it of like film ever. Like, it's such a just such a great visual to see. Uh, is one of them on your top five anything to do with Fast and the Furious? <laughs> well, I mean, the planes coming out of the, the – the, I mean, the cars jumping out of the airplane is pretty cool. <laughs> but was, is it top five? No, it's not top five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it, I mean, but yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's such an amazing visual, and it just—that's just like the perfect cherry on top of an already like amazing journey that you went on with this film already. Couple, so a couple of a uh, couple of things I want to discuss. The 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 film won a ton of Academy Awards. Uh, it won for best screenplay, but um, the two writers, uh, Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson, were still on the Hollywood blacklist uh, oh. in the in the 1950s. So they were yeah. not given on screen credit for the movie. The, the on screen credit was given to the the author of the of the of the book Pierre Boulet of the, of the novel, uh, who, who spoke no English, who spoke by the no way. English, and and was given the and and he actually won the Academy Award. Award. Uh, I think in the eighties they did yeah. kind of reverse that. I, I think Boulay probably still kept his Oscar, but they they just gave a, additional Oscars to Foreman and Wilson. Now, now we're not saying that people who don't speak English shouldn't get Oscars, but like I think it was well documented that he couldn't even write English. So how was he supposed to write a screenplay exactly. if he couldn't even write in exactly. English? Exactly. So. Um, unfortunately, for both Foreman and Wilson, they were both dead whenever they whenever this was kind of corrected. Yeah. But you know that that's that you know I, I we will. As we do this podcast, and as we do pretty much any movie from the fifties, we're going to be talking about the blacklist. It's such a, I mean, it's such a kind of powerful presence. We could do a whole show on just the blacklist on the walk. Uh, yeah, you know? yeah, <laughs> the walk on the walk, bro. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's such a. It, it, it always, it's, I mean, we talked about it, and on the waterfront, uh, I'm sure there's going to be more movies that's going to that's going to pop up in. Uh, but you know, speaking of the Oscars, this this movie cleaned up as one of those is one of those years where like uh, a movie was nominated for a bunch of stuff and it pretty much won everything like except as you said the supporting role for Sasui Hayakawa. It, it did win Best Picture, won Best Director for Lean, Actor for Alec Guinness, Screenplay as we just mentioned, Music, Film Editing, Cinematography. It has been on a bunch of AFI lists over the years. Uh, as I said, it, it was a. Um, 
a huge, huge box office success. It is still in the top 100 highest grossing films of all time if you adjust for inflation. And adjusted for inflation, it has made $480 million. So that was a kind of a massive success. Just a percentage of that that William, that William Holden got. I wonder what percentage he got out of that. But the, <laughs> right. the $480 million uh, in 2017 money. So um, that's that's pretty freaking fantastic. Yeah, just and it leaves behind such a great legacy too. Like everybody remembers this film. Uh, and you know, even though you're right, the, the 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 first 20 minutes or so are really kind of dry and slow. I think the movie is really rewatchable. It, it is really kind of a good, fun adventure movie. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, like I said, like it really picks up maybe about a half hour in, and after that, like it becomes this really wacky like adventure movie. That's that's very complex as well because the characters are well written. So it keeps everything interesting and like and like we keep saying the big climax at the end like just makes everything worth it. Because like at the end, you know, uh, you, you know the last the, the third act of the film, you have like a split. You have you have uh, Nicholson's story, which is more of a drama uh, and like a, a like a character study of this guy, and then the other half is like as as our friend Draven says, a man on a men on a mission film, you know, uh, which, yeah. which is a lot of fun to watch too. So. Um, you know that that the film is really rewatchable again, especially at the very ending. That that the editing at the end is so masterful because it really ramps up the tension and really ramps up the suspense. Uh, like you don't know, like are they? And and of course, of course, the train it, they blow up the bridge at the exact right second. At like you know whenever everything else is about to fail, it, they they get it in like the last possible second. Right. Exactly. Um. Uh, did you hear about the, uh, about, so we talked about the climax and how well, how great that was filmed. Like everything just came out great with that. It was a couple things. I don't know if you, you know about, do you know about how like they didn't record any sound for that? For the bridge blowing up? No, I didn't. Yes. Yeah. So in the, uh, in the documentary that they had on the, on the Blu-ray, they talk about how like when they got the, the footage. Oh, by the way, I have a story about the footage too that I found. That's way like that was a super close call with the footage but as far as the sound goes oh i I know the the, uh, the story you're gonna say about the footage but go ahead well as far as the sound goes when they got the footage back to paris i think that's what they were editing it um uh the guy goes like you know when they're looking at the footage there's no sound attached to it and they're like okay what happens to the sound so it turns out i think i forgot what he exactly said but i think in, in essence like they didn't record any sound for that bridge blowing sequence so like oh my god now what do we do this this has no sound now so they had to actually dig up like this old like 1937 sound effect of a train crashing and when they fit it in with the uh with the with the bridge blowing up it just it came out perfect so what you hear is not the actual sound of the bridge blowing up with the train it's actually a 1937 soundbite of a train crashing so that's pretty cool but it fit perfect that's pretty cool yeah i didn't know that and then uh yeah and then about the uh about the footage, bro, which is a super close call. The Suez crisis kind of prevented the footage. Normally, the, the footage would be shipped like through boat, I believe. But because the Suez crisis kind of closed off the canal and like all the rivers and all that, they had to actually have have it airlifted out of there to back to uh, to to Paris, I think, to edit it. So they misplaced the footage. So they, they start like a worldwide search, bro, for this footage because – this is like this is the the two hundred fifty thousand dollar you know bridge blowing up scene that they you know they needed this footage so they ended up finding it like on a tarmac at some airport 
exposed to the sun, bro. Now, it was in containers, so they protected it from direct sunlight. But still, like, that kind of film being exposed, like, in the heat and all that kind of – they were afraid – it should have deteriorated the film. But when they actually played it back, they saw that, oh, the footage was intact. That was a huge, huge, huge close call because imagine if that footage was damaged or lost. Yeah, they were screwed. Like, they, they would just cancel the I whole mean, thing. How would they bro. have done that, that, that train footage again? They would have had they, – they would they have to do like a model or something. Yeah, exactly. Or rewrite the ending. I don't know. But oh, that would have been horrible. That's, that's, that yeah. would have been such a tragedy. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's the bridge on the river quiet. Do you have anything else you want to say about the film? No, no, not really. Uh, you know, just uh, if there's those of you who haven't seen it, well, I'm sure you have because we just spoiled the whole thing. But um, if you haven't seen it, listen to our spoilers and you're still interested in seeing it, I highly recommend it. It's one of those like you don't really hear about it as much compared to some of the other Best Picture winners, but it did, does leave behind like a very lasting legacy. I mean, Alec Guinness got won an Academy Award for this and won Best Picture. You know, it's one of David. It's the first of the David Lean trilogy, as I like to call it, and it's definitely, definitely worth your time. It's one of those really cool like kind of hybrids between you know drama and action adventure film, and it's just it's a it's a great amazing ride. So definitely check it out if you haven't seen it already. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, 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 I think it should. I think it has a decent. It has a decent standing in in, in the, the best picture winners. One of the better ones, especially in the nineteen fifties. In nineteen fifties, you had a lot of crap. You had the greatest show on earth, which I I really just yeah. hate that movie. Um, uh, and around the world in eighty days, which I don't hate, but it's not great. But Bridge on the River Quiet. Now, Bridge on the River Quiet, interestingly enough, beat another all-time classic for the best picture uh, which we'll get to at some point uh, in 12 Angry Men but it, when you when you look right. at both of them not not to say that 12 Angry Men I, I think I probably think 12 Angry Men is a better film but I mean Bridge on the River Kwai is a is a massive production so I think that's probably why yeah. uh, it ended up winning but uh, as far as uh, as far as this film goes I I, I highly recommend it um, if you've seen the film which I hope you have uh, I, I have a couple recommendations for you that you know for our audience out there, if they if they see if they enjoy the bridge and the require, the first one would be uh, from nineteen twenty six, the general with Buster Keaton, only because that also has a film is a film about a train crashing. So um, if you if you've never seen it, it's very impressive, uh, and also they actually did. All- crash a real train in that film uh another one is uh, uh another william holden world war ii movie uh stay lag 17 from 1953 nice uh, that's a good one uh, which is basically about him uh escaping uh escaping prison uh, uh another prisoner of war camp i think this time it was the germans in that film another david lean film uh, i would recommend is lawrence of arabia just because it's it's the kind of the same kind of epic grand scope and another kind of prisoner of war escape film that I would recommend is The Great Escape from 1963. Kind of all star cast with Steve McQueen and James Garner and Charles Bronson and Tunnel Pleasance. Uh, <laughs> I think James Coburn is in there. Uh, it's uh, it's a great uh, it's a great uh, heist not heist uh, break out of prison movie. So those would be my recommendations uh, if you like The Bridge on the River Kwai. Do you have any additional ones? Oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, if you're into more of like the William Holden stuff, like I would definitely check out Sunset Boulevard. You know, William Holden is amazing in that movie. Uh, Network is another one that I love. The Wild Bunch is another great William Holden movie. And then if you're into Alec Guinness, you know, like we said, there's Lawrence Arabia. There's Dr. Zhivago. Uh, Fall of the Roman Empire, which is one of the – it's a wacky one that I really like, one of those sword and sandals flicks. Um, but yeah, but like all the other stuff you said too are, are highly, highly recommended as well. 
Uh, and if you want to watch uh, The Bridge on the River Kwai, it's pretty much available in all uh, streaming video uh, purchase formats uh, on Amazon, iTunes, Google, Vudu, and YouTube uh, for for rental or purchase. Uh, the disc is available to rent on Netflix, and uh, it's got several different uh, Blu-ray versions out there. Um, I don't think there's a really great super special edition or anything that, that I would recommend. Pretty much any of the Blu-rays I think is fine. I just have the standard Blu-ray release. Uh, I have the, uh, the Digibook, the Collector's Edition Digibook, which it doesn't go with a with a bonus disc or anything, but it has like the documentary about the making of. It has John Milius's thoughts on the film, uh, a couple of commentaries, and a few other like little you know, I, I guess prizes. I'll call them prizes, but uh, I mean it's all it's all good stuff. Yeah, so I would recommend going out and purchasing the film. Uh, it, it's a good. And, I mean, I'm assuming it's the same transfer that I have. It's a pretty decent transfer. Uh, looks it looks yeah, really good. Yeah. Now, before we go, uh, I always like to do a little bit of this week in film history, and I think there's some interesting uh, interesting choices here. We are recording this on July 3rd, the day before uh, Independence Day. So, in this week in film history, in 1953, as we mentioned uh, before, Stay Like 17 was released, interestingly enough. So was The Great Escape. Uh, two films that we both recommended on this segment uh, were both released this week in history. In 1980, one of my favorite comedies of all time, Airplane, was released uh, in theaters, uh, which is, I think, endlessly rewatchable. Definitely. 1985, a film that we did, whose trilogy we did an entire uh, retrospective on, a Force Perspective, and a, and a future uh, essential film that we'll be talking about, Back to the Future, was released this week. Nice. Uh, also, another major blockbuster in 1981, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. In 90, oh, one of my favorites. In 94, Forrest Gump. Ah, that's another good one. It shouldn't have won over Pulp Fiction, but it's, that's another, I, I like and that one. And in 1996, can you take one guess what movie could have come out in 1996 this week oh i have an idea and, and i'll tell you what like i'm sitting in my little studio right now and i have a flying saucer staring right at me from that movie so welcome to earth <laughs> independence day <laughs> was released in 96 this week and also this week uh another will smith vehicle men in black in 97 so this is kind of it was kind of an interesting week in film history i thought that's crazy bro i they were showing men in black i think a couple days ago on i think tnt or one of those channels and it hit me like bro Men in Black is 20 years old yeah. this year. That's crazy. It's old, dude. And it's still the best yeah. one. <laughs> and it makes me feel old. <laughs> still still the best. Still the best. Uh... Now, I was thinking about this recently. Since Men in Black, has Will Smith made another great action movie since Men in Black? Since Men Which in Black. Which 20 years ago. He's had a lot of movies that made a lot of money. Like he had iRobot. Which I didn't think was very good. He had Bad Boys Two, which eh. Wild Wild West was a, a very famous flop. <laughs> and pretty much, I mean, what has come out since Men in Black that I can't? Oh, I Am Legend was a big hit for him. I I personally like I don't I like Am I Am Legend because I like uh, I I think the ending is a cop out. Oh, <laughs> but I mean, anything else? I mean, other than Men in Black, anything else? Uh, I mean, as far as action, like not really. I think that that was it. I mean, unless you're not counting the Bad Boys. Yeah, films. no Bad Boys. Bad Boys. Yeah, do no, I think. that doesn't count <laughs> and, and yeah, i know he's so then, done like yeah, some dramatic ones like he did ali which is a pretty decent hit and um the pursuit of happiness which i i hate that movie um <laughs> well i mean i have the soft spot for hitch i don't know about you it's just okay i guess Hitch is pretty decent it's just an okay romantic yeah. comedy it's not bad yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. So before we go, we want to find out what our movie is for next time. So it's time to bust out the random movie generator. All right. Let's do this. I'm excited. All right. Here we go. It's calculating, calculating, and <laughs> uh, 
I swear this wasn't planned. <laughs> I swear this wasn't planned because uh, we just talked about this film during our um, during our discussion. But our next film is another film starring Alec Guinness. Star Wars from 1977. So that's what we'll be discussing on the next show. Now, for those of us who have listened to our Force Perspective show, several years ago, we did several retrospectives on the entire Star Wars saga. Uh, do you remember off the top of your head what episode numbers they were? It was actually episodes 15, 16, and 17 because part two was actually two parts. So we have part one, which does the original trilogy. So that's episode 15. Then 16 and 17, we do the prequels. All right. So, so uh, if you if you want to kind of taste of what we'll be talking about next time, go back. You know, you should be subscribed to Force Perspective on iTunes anyway. Uh, but go back, subscribe to it. Go try go to the 3D archives. Uh, listen to episodes 15, 16, and 17. Earmuff warning. If you have little ones in the car or you're listening to it at work, the language gets salty. So just keep it, keep that in mind. It's a little – some NSFW conversation. But, uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun on those we're just going to take a little more of a quote-unquote serious approach with this one next time but um i I have a feeling that you and i could probably do no prep on this and do a show like tomorrow because we've seen it like a million times but i will still be rewatching it yeah well as will i because what i might do just for this i might actually do rogue one and then a new hope after that so that'll be uh that'll be next time so uh keep that you know I, i'm sure i don't have to go tell you to watch star wars i'm sure everyone listening has seen star wars already i hope so all right <laughs> so that'll about do it for our show um please uh visit essentialfilmspodcast.com for new articles uh up there uh i've got a couple recent ones um i had a, a retrospective on uh on the films of roger moore since who since the last time we we were on this podcast he unfortunately passed away he was he was my away. first yeah. james bond uh that i saw saw coming up so he was he was my uh he was my first James Bond that hurt a little bit and then uh, uh, like not only a week or two after that uh Adam West died so that was a little bit of a he was my yeah. first Batman so that was a little rough to, it was a little <laughs> one-two punch that that was a little bit hard to, to deal with but um on at centralfilmspodcast.com you'll see uh, a retrospective of Roger Moore and also uh I did a review of the first Batman film in 1966 which if you've never seen it is a lot of campy fun in my opinion <laughs> I said on the uh, on the old Batman Force perspective shows that you know I mean nowadays I kind of tolerate it a little more but I took I took it a little too seriously when I was watching it the first time I was like oh my god this is so stupid you know but it's like I, I'm I wasn't in that like you know oh this was this was what it was this was the whole Batman show in the sixties it was campy it was nonsense you know but it, it's wacky you know and I I kind of see it like that now but I remember like remember just trashing it when I was we were first talking about it in the first Batman episode but now I, I come around on it like it's it, it's it's the product of its uh, time I, I do I, I do kind of like love it. the film and I and I love that whole show so it, it is like you said a product of its time and you have to kind of watch it as a with a different eye you can't watch it as like the right, you know exactly. you can't watch it as like a exactly. serious thing it's 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 campy it's fun um and honestly it's shark repellent shark repellent, shark repellent man come on and sometimes you just can't get rid of a bomb. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, if you want to email us, please email us at essentialfilmspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, please like the Essential Films on Facebook and follow at Essential Films on Twitter. And also, please like, rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And also, just throwing this out there, if anybody wants to advertise on our show, 
we could always use a little money. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna turn anybody down. Please listen to our other show, Force Perspective. As I said, we we in in the past we did this Star Wars retrospective. We've done a Batman retrospective. We did Back to the Future retrospectives, uh, all which were mentioned on this show. Um, but uh, we've also uh, got new episodes up. You know, our la- most recent episode talked about some uh, some of the more recent uh, Hollywood releases like Wonder Woman, which we both highly recommend. Absolutely, absolutely. Great and then film. on our next episode, we're going to be talking about some uh, some of our newer films that are out there like. Uh, Transformers and Baby Driver, uh, one of which I think we would both recommend. Oh, which one? <laughs> yeah, <Gee>, I wonder. <laughs> you'll have to you'll have to stay tuned and find out. But uh, that'll that'll be dropping soon. Um, anything that you want to? Where can what kind of listeners find you, Mark? All right. Well, if you want to follow my antics on social media, you can actually follow me on Twitter at SportsGuy five one five. You can also follow uh, Force Perspective, the podcast at uh, FPM. Po- actually, no, it's, I'm sorry. It's FP Movie Podcast. That's the Twitter handle for that. Because I get it confused with the email sometimes. So the Twitter handle is at FP Movie Podcast. I'll figure out. I'll, I'll mention this too. For those of you who are into a WWE, into wrestling, I do a show also with uh, with our boy Denon, who's been on Force Perspective a few times, called The Planet Jobbers. You can also listen to that on SoundCloud. You can follow the show itself at RL Planet Jobbers. Uh, we're coming up uh, on episode number 11 this week. We're going to preview the uh, Great Balls of Fire pay-per-view. So that should be some fun. Dumbest day for a pay-per-view I've ever heard. A- ever. Ever, ever. Anyway. <laughs> but the, but, but uh, ironically enough, the, the name is to it, but the card actually looks good. So we'll see. Uh, and also there's a Force Perspective Facebook page too. Yes, we are on Facebook.com slash Force dash Perspective. So you can find us there as well. All right. Uh, any other plugs you want to get out there before we uh, say goodbye to our listeners? That's pretty much it. Although I will say, you know, this was a, certainly a jolly good show. So uh, I'll leave you all with that. All right. <laughs> Thank you everyone for listening to our episode this week on the Bridge on the River Kwai. Please be sure to tune in next time for Star Wars, a.k.a. Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. And until next time, please stay essential because it's madness. Madness. Madness.